0: Today's passage is from 1 Peter 2, verses 4 to 10. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious, but to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for,
1: When I was three or four, apparently I wanted to be a fire engine. Not a fireman, but a fire engine. Now I was obviously a philosophically and ontologically confused child. Uh, In late primary, early high school, I aspired to be a professional professional sports person. I went to uni and became a lawyer, and then I became a Christian and wound up as a minister of a church. I can remember the 15-year-old son of a Trinity staff member who went to a guidance counsellor the testing was done, and the counselor came back to him and said the results showed that he was ideally suited to becoming a funeral director. Now, he wasn't that excited by that prospect, let me tell you. But the idea of vocation, it's very different to a job, isn't it? I mean, jobs are work we perform to get money and to keep food on the table and the creditors at bay. But the idea of a vocation is tied up more closely with... Who we are, how we see ourselves. Uh, if you're in a social setting and you ask someone what they do, I mean, often they'll answer by saying, I am. Uh, for example, what do you do? Well, I'm an accountant or I'm a nurse or I'm a doctor. Or I'm, I'm an EA or, and on it goes. Often there's a close link between our careers and how we view ourselves. Now, we've been working our way through the New Testament letter of 1 Peter, and today we come to what is a, a hinge passage from the chapter. It's chapter 2, verses 4 to verse 10. It speaks to our core identity and what God has called us to be in this world. It gives the followers of Jesus some vocational counseling. Now, next week, uh, when we move on from chapter 2, verse 11, we'll turn our attention to how we live out that vocational calling in an unbelieving world. So today, let's dig into 1 Peter chapter 2 from verse 4 and get some insight into what God thinks our essential vocation is. Now, I want you to notice from the outset that vocation starts with understanding who Jesus is and what he's accomplished. As we look at this uh, section in 1 Peter chapter 2, there's a lot of building imagery. So come with me to chapter 2 and verse 4. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him. Now, Jesus is described as the living stone chosen by God. But how can Jesus be chosen? Uh, Back in chapter 1 and verse 2, believers are referred to as chosen. Uh, God calls people into his family. But isn't Jesus eternally God? I mean, how could he be chosen? Well, it becomes clear when we explore the other part of that description. Jesus is a living stone. Now, at this point, Peter is picking up on an image from the Old Testament. You see it there in verse 6. It's a quote from the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 28. See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone. And the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now, the prophet was ripping into God's people. They thought because they, they lived in the Promised Land, they had the great temple in Jerusalem, that things were okay between them and God. But Isaiah said that their hearts were a long way away from God and the temple wasn't a spiritual good luck charm that could save them. And Isaiah predicted, he prophesied the destruction of the temple But he also said that there was a day coming when God would erect a new temple in Jerusalem or in Zion, one with a lasting foundation, a chosen and precious cornerstone. Now, it's a metaphor for Jesus. He's chosen in in the sense that he's God's appointed means for the salvation of people. If we turn to John's Gospel, to chapter 2, we notice that Jesus drives people out of the temple because they're just misusing it to make money, to rip people off. And when he's challenged about his authority to take that action, he replies in John chapter 2, verse 19. Now, remember at this point, he's standing outside this huge temple, this impressive temple, and this is what he says. Destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. Now, this temple had taken... Decades to build. It was a, an enormous structure that covered an area that's similar to the size of the Adelaide Oval precinct. So the guys listening to Jesus thought he was bonkers. But John makes a further comment in John chapter 2, verse 21. But the temple Jesus had spoken of was his body. You see, Jesus, by his death and by his resurrection, provides the foundation for the salvation of people. And we're also told that he is a precious living stone. Uh, Back in verse 4, it says he is chosen by God and precious to him. Or in verse 6, see what it says there, a chosen and precious cornerstone. Or if you go to verse 7, to you who believe this stone is precious, Holy Trinity Church on North Terrace, it has historical significance. It's the oldest church building in the city, dates back to 1838. It was erected with very impressive large stones. Now, it's precious, especially to the National Trust, who have put a plaque on it. Now, that's because the National Trust highly values dead stones. Now, just in case you think I'm a cultural philistine, I think there's a real place for historic buildings, and their preservation. And you might be like me and have a lot of significant memories of times in that building on North Terrace. Weddings, funerals, baptisms, or other significant moments. But at the end of the day, it's just a building. And Christians don't treasure dead stones. We treasure the living stone. Jesus, he's precious to us. Then I want you to notice how this... Building image changes. Look at verses 7 and 8. Now, to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, and then there's a quote from Psalm 118 and Isaiah 8, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. Now, let me just highlight two things from here. The first is this, Jesus' value is not based on his popularity. I mean, they took a vote in the first century and they killed him. He is, as it says in verse 4, he's rejected by humans. But it's God's opinion that counts here. God says he is precious and we should hold the same view. then the second thing is, notice how divisive Jesus is at this point. In verse 7, we're told the cornerstone causes people to stumble and fall. You see, if you don't trust in Jesus, then you disagree with God about the core purpose for your life. At this point, God is not a a life coach helping you to achieve your goals. He is the life coach who tells you what your life needs to be centred on. You make anything else the foundation for your life, And you invite the judgment of God. Because at the end of the day, there is no basis upon which you can have relationship with God except through Jesus. Now, no one actually knows where the foundation stone for Holy Trinity Church on North Terrace is. Apparently, it's located somewhere under the building. It's effectively lost. But, of course, it it doesn't matter because the true foundation for the church is not a dead stone; it's the living Lord Jesus. So it doesn't matter whether we meet in a Gothic church building or in a school hall. But can I say we always need to be vigilant about how we build as a church? Our church isn't founded on our history. You know, as the first evangelical church in the city, uh, we don't take pride in the fact that we're a Bible-teaching church. We're preaching as value. The key to our church, it's not effective evangelistic strategies or that we're well organised or that we have inspiring staff. A church is never built on its wonderful music ministry. I mean, they're good things, you know, to love the scriptures, to have faithful preaching and encouraging music. But, friends, we're a church that treasures Jesus. And why is that? Well, come with me to 1 Peter 2. And verse 24, just see what it says there about Jesus. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. Or in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, see what it says there. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body but made alive in the spirit. If you want to meet God, there is no other option than to go to Jesus. Now, having established the central place of Jesus, this passage now maps out the vocation for us as believers. We're described as living stones in a spiritual house. Look at chapter 2, verse 5. You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house. Now, if you've gathered together today to meet in the building, then we are meeting in a building that's made of dead materials, you know, wood, stone, iron, glass, literally lifeless. And we'll head home after the meeting and lead busy lives. But this building's not going to do anything. But God's people here are described as living stones, Now, that's you if you're a believer. We are the living stones meeting in a dead building. In the Old Testament, the the temple functioned as a meeting point between God and his people, but not anymore. We don't have to go to a building or a place in order to meet God. We're living stones in whom God dwells by his spirit, and God's adding To his spiritual house. Peter wrote to believers who were being persecuted and marginalised for following Christ. In Australia, Christians aren't the flavour of the month right now. But nevertheless, God is still building his people. Today, there are over 2 billion believers around the world, and the number is constantly growing. The experts tell me that the rate at which people are becoming Christians is about three and a half times faster than the population growth. That means that during the time I've been speaking, it's estimated that around 3,500 people have become Christians across the globe. The Church of God, His people, is at the centre of His eternal plans. And it puts things in perspective, doesn't it? If you ask people how important churches are or how important this meeting is today, if you're meeting here in person, I suspect that most people would probably think it's marginally significant to life. Actually, pretty unimportant. But not God. His people are at at the centre of what he is doing in his world. It goes on. We're also described as priests. Verse 5. You're being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices accepted to God. Or in verse 9, uh, we're a royal priesthood. Now, I grew up in a Roman Catholic family, and when I was about 10 or 11, my mother asked me if I wanted to become a priest when I grew up. Now, it, it wasn't an idea that excited me all that much. But this is the identity and vocation for every person who calls themselves a Christian. It picks up on the language of the Old Testament book of Exodus. Uh, In that historical context, God had rescued his people out of Egypt by extraordinary miracles. He brought them to Mount Sinai where he gave them the Ten Commandments and he detailed his plans for them. You can pick it up in Exodus chapter 19, verses 5 and 6. It goes like this. God says to them, "'If you'll obey my voice and keep my covenant,' You shall be my own possession among the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. Now, in the Old Testament, priests were the ones who offered sacrifices in the temple. They were like middlemen between the people of God and God, so people could have access to God. But there's no need for that now, because Jesus has given us all access to God through his sacrifice of himself on our behalf, we have direct connection to the living God. And in that sense, we're all priests now. I was ordained a minister and I started serving here at Trinity in December 1987. But, you know, truth be known, I was really ordained or priested back in September 1978 because that's when I was born again and started following Jesus, are you a Christian? Then by definition, you're a priest, and that's how you should see yourself. Now, I'm not saying it's a great opening line when you're introducing yourself at a party, you know, hi, I'm Paul, Mary, Joan, Barry, you know, oh, what do you do? I'm a priest. It works for me, but I expect not for most people, right? It's socially clumsy but actually it's the way you should be thinking because the reality is you were there in that location representing the king of the universe. And that's why it goes on and talks about the fact that we're to offer spiritual sacrifices. That's in verse 5. Now, what are they? In verses 9 and 10, it develops the idea. It's to declare the praises of him. He's brought you out of darkness into his marvellous light. Because once you'd not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. It's the language of corporate worship. It's party language. And let me say, it certainly includes what we do when we meet together. You know, when we gather, we declare the praises of God together. Some Sundays recently, it's just been Sue and me watching church online together. And when it comes to singing, Sue has a great voice and me, not so much. So when it's just the two of us singing, it feels like one of us is making a joyful noise but me, I sound more like chalk on a blackboard, right? It's such a relief to be able to start meeting together again and belting out songs and have my voice drowned out by others around me. It's wonderful together to praise God. Now, Peter was writing to believers who were under enormous pressure to tone down their convictions. They were being persecuted and ostracised. And I expect their meetings were conducted at considerable risk to their person and their social standing. It's actually the same for lots of believers around the world today. In Australia, the pressure on us is more subtle, it's less overt. But there is a real temptation to be a private Christian. I mean, not so much when we meet together like this week by week, but when we aren't here. But, of course, praising God, it's not confined to a meeting for an hour a week or it's not just the way we relate internally within the family of God, right? It involves every aspect of life 24-7. Because once we were spiritual nobodies, we didn't know God, but now we have received mercy. How good is that? I mean, once you had no clear identity and purpose, but now you are part of the people of God and it's a whole of life thing. It's a vocation thing. So, of course, all of life is about declaring how terrific God is. Now, over the next few weeks, we're going to come back to this idea of how we minister as priests, especially as we face an unbelieving world. Friends, this part of the Bible, it gives us clarity about our vocation and purpose. Some lines from films, they stick in your brain, don't they? Like uh, Clint Eastwood in Sudden Impact... Go ahead, make my day. Or um, Arnold Schwarzenegger in The Terminator, I'll be back. In the Dead Poets Society, Robin Williams, he plays a teacher with an extraordinarily powerful impact on his students. Carpe diem, seize the day, boys. Make your lives extraordinary. But possibly the most iconic and culture-shaping film of the last 20 years was... And, of course, I speak of Spider-Man, released in 2002. Uh, Spider-Man, actor Peter Parker, he quotes something from his Uncle Ben. With great power comes great responsibility. Now, if I was paraphrasing uh, the bit of one Peter we've been looking at this morning or tonight, it would go something like this. "With, With great privilege comes great responsibility. Sam Kerr is the captain of the Matildas, the Australian women's soccer team. Now, let's let's say the Matildas make it through the qualifying rounds and into the gold medal playoff at the Tokyo Olympics next year. They're 10 minutes away from the kickoff and no Sam Kerr. So they call her and she explains that she figured she might never get back to Japan again, so she decided she'd take the day off to do some sightseeing and take in, you know, a few of the ornamental gardens. it would just be unthinkable. If you're selected to lead Australia in the Olympics, you show up. Are you a Christian? Well, friends, you have been selected by God. He has shown us mercy and grace. We belong to him. Chapter 2, verse 10. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Every day we have the profound privilege of turning up and representing, living for the praise of the one who saved us. Can I encourage you, just make sure, that you turn up. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for uh, this uh, radical, transforming part of your word that tells us about who we are, our identity, our purpose, our calling in this world. And, Father, we pray that you'll help us both uh, today and in the coming weeks to be working through its implications for what it means for us to be your people. Uh, on a visa in this world, temporary travellers heading to heaven, but wanting to live faithfully for you in the here and the now. Help us to work it out and to encourage each other as we do it. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.